Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to the Pediatric Research Podcast for May 2017. This month and every other month from here on out, we will meet an early careers investigator to hear about their achievements and motivations, as well as taking a look into one of their recent paediatric research papers. I'm delighted to kick things off with Dr. Adam Freimoyer, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Paediatrics at Stanford University. He described himself to me as a 39-year-old physician scientist passionate about promoting the safe and efficacious use of therapeutic drugs in neonates and children. He's established a cross-disciplinary research program that focuses on the application of clinical pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics to guide therapeutic decision-making in children. I recently gave him a call. Tell me briefly, Adam, about where your medical career started and how you got so interested in paediatric clinical pharmacology. I'm a pediatrician by training, so during residency, I just remember during clinical care, during internship year, of one of the things you do a lot in, in internship is learn how to write orders for medications. Um, and so the question was always, for our children, what dose to give them? And at that time, um, this, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but at that time we had personal desktop assistants or PDAs, the Palm Pilot, and I would look on there for apps that would tell you the dose. So I began the question, though, where does that dose that they tell us to give, where did it come from? And looking at it, I realized, oh, wow, there's not a lot of information that was available to sort of guide where that decision or dose decision came up to. Um, and I began to sort of think about pediatric therapeutics and specifically clinical pharmacology. What's lucky is I, was at, I trained at uh, University of California, San Francisco during my pediatric residency. And it just so happened um, I turned into my own, you know, into our own little back door there. And they have a, a formal, well-established clinical pharmacology training program that's been around for over 30 years. Um, and so after my pediatric residency, I did a, a three-year fellowship in clinical pharmacology. It wasn't a pediatric-specific program, but really there's a lot of flexibility in it where I tried to use the adult principles and start to translate them over to the pediatric world. Right. So there was an unmet need in the pediatric sphere of clinical pharmacology. Yeah, so pediatrics and children in general are oftentimes considered therapeutic orphans because the same level of evidence for a drug that's available for adults 
is not available for children. Um, and so the most rigorous testing, you know, and scientific investigation goes through formal approval by the uh, Federal Drug Administration, FDA, in the U.S., and that provides a level of evidence of labeling and evidence that's within a, within a, within a drug's package, which is called a package insert, which sort of tells you about the drug, and specifically, you know, what dose to use, what population you can use it in. And oftentimes, if, you know, if you look at that, most drugs don't have any labeling information for children. Um, and so, you know, we're really, as pediatricians, we're oftentimes uh, sort of forced to use drugs off-label without the same level of evidence as in adults. And so that's sort of really, that need was there also. And so I sort of said, oh, well, this, is a, this is a place where I can really impact uh, potentially child health by helping fill that gap. Right. And so began your translational research career. And so you're, you're now a faculty member in the Department of Pediatrics at Stanford. Correct. Yeah. Tell me about the focus of your work there then. Yeah. So um, transitioning you know, to, to Stanford as faculty, I had this desire to looking at how do we make therapeutic decisions in children and what information do we need? And as I said, that really focuses a lot on clinical pharmacology. And specifically, I focus on um, the pharmacokinetics of a drug and the, the pharmacodynamics. And so I try to sort of put that together and understand then quantitatively, based on the pharmacokinetics and potentially the pharmacodynamics, what dose of drug to give to a, to a child. And so I, I, I really focus on understanding that and specifically looking at sort of what we call pharmacokinetic modeling simulation, where you can sort of model using mathematical relationships the time course of that drug in the body and then the time course of the response and that gives you a really rich understanding of how to dose the drug. Why is there this big gap in our understanding of pharmacology when it comes to pediatrics? Why have the studies not been done? I mean, I think the question of, you know, why have children been left behind is, is complicated and probably multifaceted. In my opinion, I think there's probably a couple reasons for that. I think it is difficult and challenging to do clinical research and to do clinical trials in children and neonates. That requires a very rich and in-depth in, in understanding and infrastructure to perform those trials. That has been somewhat lacking previously in the pediatric sphere. Um, in general, we also always want to protect children, too. There's this underlying notion uh, and just feeling that, hey, let's make sure we don't, you know, we don't want to expose children to unnecessary risk or harm. Um, the challenge, though, is that at the same time, then, when you use the medication without a level of evidence, then you're potentially in your clinical world exposing them to that to potential risk and harm um, because we don't have the same level of evidence. And I think the last reason why there's this lack of sort of in-depth inquiry is when you have a new drug, it's up a little bit to the pharmaceutical industry. And there's some generally disincentives potentially within that world, the pharmaceutical world, to not perform trials in children historically. There's just not as many children as adults. Luckily, though, in the United States and in Europe, there's been efforts to try to help provide those incentives to the pharmaceutical world to promote the research uh, of understanding how to use these drugs during the drug development process before they're approved. So those are some of the issues at hand and some of the things moving forward of how these are being addressed to hopefully provide clinicians and providers who take care of children with better information about how to dose drugs in children. So you, you focus now on neonates with uh, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE. Could you briefly describe for us the treatment for this as it currently stands? Yeah, so they are babies who, at the time of delivery, have a hypoxic injury or hit um, occur, where they're not having good perfusion, and they're not having good oxygen to their body and to their brain. And so they are known to have pretty severe and complicated 
course after they're born, leading to death and long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes and issues such as cerebral palsy, blindness, deafness. And so through, again, therapeutic research and trials that were put on by the Neonatal Research Network and supported initially by some animal studies, they found that, hey, a treatment called hypothermia, um, which is basically you cool the body um, for, for three days, um, for 72 hours. If you do that to children with, that are born with HIE um, at the time of delivery, you can improve their outcomes. And so they can have a benefit from that. And babies who get hypothermia do better than those who don't have hypothermia. And that's currently standard of care now. Um, that level of evidence has been shown by multiple clinical trials in the United States and in Europe and even, I, I believe, in uh, Australia. Um, but even with the hypothermia, you know, 40 to 50% of neonates will still have moderate to severe neurological impairment and death. In addition, hypothermia is also difficult to implement in low-resource settings. Um, we know that, uh, you know that worldwide, in low-resource settings, this same HIE or perinatal asphyxia is common and leads to many deaths. And so the question is, is are there additional treatment options that are available for this population? Um, and that's sort of where um, I got, you know, there's a potential novel treatment um, in this for HIE called erythropoietin. EPO. Or EPO. So erythropoietin, um, and short name, you know, oftentimes people know it as EPO. And EPO, you know, it's more commonly people are familiar with its role in erythropoiesis, and it's used for the treatment of anemia. And, and or, you know, in sports, we think about it as in, in, in some of the blood doping. Um, however, it also has a, a much more diverse array of cells that potentially have receptors to EPO. So there's EPO receptors on a bunch of other cells throughout the body that aren't involved in hematopoiesis, including the brain. And so it's been shown that you know, neuro, neuronal progenitor cells, mature neurons, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, microglia, all have these receptors on them. In addition, what's interesting is when you look at, based on some of the preclinical data, that after you have hypoxic ischemic injury, this EPO receptor is upregulated in, the, in those cells in the brain. And so, again, preclinical studies have shown that when you bind the EPO receptor in these cells, some of the signaling pathways get involved that actually could be promising for erythropoietin. It's been shown to reduce apoptosis, reduce inflammation, reduce some of the uh, oxidative and excitotoxic injury that occurs after hypoxic ischemic injury. Um, there's even some neurotrophic effects. So based on some of those preclinical data, and they said, okay, well, let's see what, what, what happens when we put it in animals. So there's some animal models that try to mimic what happens to the neonate, um, where they have hypoxic injury to the brain. And when it was, when it was used in those animals, there's some really promising, robust neuroprotective effects. And this was shown in multiple models, even including non-human primate models. And so this gave a lot of level of evidence that, hey, this is a really potentially novel treatment that we should begin to look at in neonates. And so then the question then becomes, well, what dose do we use? And we always try to learn from what we already studied. So we went back to the, if you go to the animal models, we see that much higher EPO doses are required for this neuroprotective effect compared to the erythropoietic effect. And so, for example, in the animal model, a dose of 5,000 units per kilogram was needed for neuroprotection versus typically we're used to using doses of 250 units per kilogram. So, you know, over a tenfold increase in dose potentially is needed. In addition, this gets back to neonates with HIE who, who are being cooled or receiving hypothermia. They're known to have altered pharmacokinetics of drugs. We see that oftentimes their drug dose needs are a little bit lower because just like the brain's getting injured from the hypoxic injury, we also see injury to the organs important in drug elimination and metabolism, the liver and the kidney. And so oftentimes these neonates have altered drug dose needs. 
and so it was high time then for a pharmacokinetic analysis of this of this drug in this population. Tell me then about your recent paper in paediatric research and how you set about finding the optimal dosing regimen for this therapy. Right. So part of this, because they need, we needed to figure out what dose of drug to use, we had to do some pharmacokinetic trials. And so collaborators I worked with, um, Yvonne Wu from UCSF and Sunny Jewell from University of Washington, they did some of the initial studies that was called a phase one study, which was really to use a dose escalation study to figure out, let's use higher and higher doses and see if it's safe and also what are some of the drug levels after those doses. Um, and they used that then to also then to go to a phase two trial to look at preliminary efficacy data. So does it work? And so they selected a dose based on that, and they collected some drug levels during that study too. So we said, okay, well, now that we have some data in, in patients, can we now really get a better understanding, an in-depth understanding of their pharmacokinetics and what dose they need? And so we used the data from this phase one and phase two trial to build a pharmacokinetic model, a population pharmacokinetic model, which looks at, you know, what is the time course of the drug? What are some potential predictors of the drug's PK? So what are predictors of clearance? Um, predictors of volume. And in that study, you actually came out with some pretty solid results along those lines. Yeah, so we built a model and we were able to really describe the time course of the drug well. We found that weight was a strong predictor of clearance uh, and of volume of the drug and after, but no other predictors were there that were significant. So gestational age, uh, predictors of organ dysfunction, they weren't really helpful in understanding the pharmacokinetics. So we know, one, that if we give weight-based dosing, we're going to get similar exposures between patients. But then the question is, what exposure do we need? And so we went back to the animal data and said, hey, you know, th- for the dose that works in animals, what exposures do they need um, to, be, to have neural protection? And so we established drug dose exposure targets in, in animal models. And specifically, we found two that were predictive in the animal model, and that was a, a maximum concentration called a C-max. That's a concentration right after you give the IV infusion of the erythropoietin, the EPO. If it's greater than 10,000 units per liter, you know, if you're above that, that dose had benefit in the animal model. In addition, we looked at the overall exposure of the drug um, that the animal had in the first 48 hours, so the area under the curve for 48 hours, and we found, based on the animal models, an exposure greater than 140,000 units times hour liter was found to be the dose that was most neuroprotective. So we used those targets to say, hey, this is where we want to be in these neonates to maximize the chance that we're going to have benefit of this drug in this population when we move it forward in the phase three trial, in the, in the efficacy trial. So what we could do is we built the model, could just have the time course of the drug, we knew how to predict you know, the drug levels, and we said, what dose in the, in the neonates gives us those exposure measures? And so we had you know, patients on different dosing regimens, ranging from 250 units per kilogram up to 2,500 units per kilogram, and giving at every 48 hours versus some neonates got it for every 24 hours for the first couple days. And what we showed is that for these neonates to achieve that target Cmax and that target area under the curve, you really need a dose of 1,000 units per kilogram every 24 hours for the first three days of dosing. So that can give us some confidence that you know we now know that dose will have a higher probability in this population of achieving a target that is associated with response in the animal models. And we can have confidence that that's the dose we should move forward in our next trial to really understand does this drug work. So it's exciting that this dose now is now being utilized in a phase three trial that's currently active called the HEAL trial, which stands for high dose erythropoietin for asphyxia and encephalopathy being run around the United States in a multi-center trial. So the results of your pediatric research paper is still fine-tuning what will feed into further efficacy studies. The, the research hasn't been fully sort of translated yet. 
Agreed. So part of the drug development, really what we're doing here is we're trying to develop an, a repurposed indication for, for erythropoietin. And as part of that drug development process, it's a, it's a slow process, but it's a, and it's a stepwise process. And so we've, you know, we've established the safety of using the high dose of erythropoietin in, in neonates, preliminary safety, you know, in, a, in upwards of 50 patients. And now we've established, you know, the pharmacokinetics and the dose needs. We're right along where we need to be for that final phase three trial to really definitively answer, does this, does this therapy improve outcomes in neonates with HIE? And are you still practicing as a pediatrician? I mean, do you come across HIE at the bedside? So um, I'm, a, I'm a neonatal hospitalist by, uh, currently in my clinical time. And so at Stanford, we have a level two NICU along with a woven nursery that I help take care of babies. But I also attend high-risk deliveries. So for deliveries that are known to be potentially complicated, such as a baby who's having distress at the time of birth. Right. So you must be quite excited about seeing these therapeutic doses of EPO coming to the clinic. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been sort of have a longstanding history of really looking at this population and trying to improve care. And we have even a neuro NICU that focuses specifically on babies with neurological issues. And HIE is one of the biggest ones. And so I see the consequences of this disease. So seeing potential new therapies that can impact these patients and and the patients I I care for definitely keeps motivation. Mm. And in terms of your career, are there there people, are there mentors that have given you motivation, that have inspired the, the path that you've taken? You know, all of this really couldn't have been done without my mentors. And so I've really benefited throughout my time of some really great mentors um, throughout all levels of my training, whether it was my research in undergraduate, medical school, um, and then going on to do my clinical pharmacology fellowship and transitioning to the faculty. And so, you know, really, you know, if you look at this, really some of the, the mentors that have been key Someone such as um, Dr. Les Bennett at UCSF, who, who's sort of one of the uh, pers- clinical pharmacologists who's been doing this for you know thirty, forty years, um, really giving me uh, the encouragement to uh, sort of do what I want to do and be positive and opening the doors for me has been just tremendously successful because I was trying to work in the pediatric sphere of clinical pharmacology, which really wasn't you know which is sort of really a, a small group and not really well established. And so having a mentor who can um, um, give you that encouragement and that positivity was just tremendous. And also, obviously, it goes without saying they just have that, that, um, that background, um, uh, just key understanding of, of how to develop careers. Um, and then coming to Stanford, I had uh, someone who then, how do I tie my clinical pharmacology understanding to like making a difference in neonates, right, in, in this population? How do, we, how do we translate and do those clinical trials in neonates? And that's where uh, Dr. Christopher M. Muir's who is my primary mentor at Stanford and has helped really shepherd my career development as a, as a junior faculty member, gave me that support uh, and, and helping me uh, sort of understand how to, how to begin to, to ask the right research questions in neonates and perform clinical trials in neonates. But, you know, those are just two examples. I mean, there's just been, you know, you need, a, you need you know, a whole bunch of people to sort of help support you along the way. One of the keys is that I've always found is that they good at giving that right balance of encouragement and support um, and helping open doors for you, but at the same time really fostering independence and letting you develop who you want to be. You know, and, and I've benefited from mentors who've given me that sort of who've been able to figure out how to how to push me at the same time, let me figure things out on my own. That was Dr. Adam Freimoyer. You can read that paper along with a bio commentary about Adam on our website, nature.com forward slash PR. I'm Jeff Marsh. See you next month. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.